uh, brought some uh, illustrations up here today, some, some props to kind of help illustrate this today for you. Um, so we're going to jump in here, actually start in, uh, we're going to start reading in verse 8, chapter 25, verse 8. And I just want to ask uh, the Lord to first uh, be the one who leads us. Lord, as we open your word and as we learn about, uh, Lord, your covenant with your people and your relationship with us, Lord, we just, we ask that you would give us your wisdom and understanding, that you would be our interpreter to help us grasp what it is that you're revealing to us, and um, Lord, to also be able to just uh, catch a fuller measure of who you are and what you've done for us. Lord, we ask that, that you would lead us into all truth as you've promised to do, and we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, as we uh, uh, look here in Exodus chapter 25, uh, it's a passage we're in today is on the heels of the Lord uh, Yahweh um, giving instructions to, to Moses and his people that they were to construct a, a tabernacle or a, a tent of meeting, essentially a, a, a portable temple um, for them while they're wandering in the desert, a place where God would manifest his presence and um, now we need to keep in mind when we talk about God being present with his people and this place of where he, he's manifesting his presence, that we're not talking about God sort of, um, uh, you know, having his mail forwarded to uh, a little tent um, where he now is contained within this tent, but rather a place where God makes his presence known. God is outside of time. He's outside of space. He's not contained by a tent or a box, or a house, or, or a building. Um, God is outside of that, but God makes his presence known in that place. And so the, this tent of meeting, or tabernacle, was the place where God uh, reminded his people that he was present with them. And God gives his people, in fact, in verses 8 and 9 uh, of chapter 25, he says, and let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst, exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and of all its furniture, so you shall make it. In other words, they were, they were not to make what they thought would be honoring to God, but they were to follow his instructions about the design of things that they are operating uh, uh, under his direction. Now, if... If, uh, if, if all he did was to say, hey, construct me a, a place where I'm going to show my presence among you. Try to put yourself in their shoes a little bit. The Israelites, they've just spent generations now in Egypt where there's a pagan religion operating all around them. Now, where would they likely begin to form their ideas of how, this, of how Yahweh should be celebrated and honored? probably by borrowing from things that they've seen in Egypt, right? I mean, that's been kind of their experience as being around those things, seeing the Egyptians worship their gods. And so it would, it would make sense that there would be at least a, a kind of a, 
they would be at least a little bit prone to borrow other pagan practices to incorporate into the worship of Yahweh. But Yahweh didn't want it that way. He is God alone, God of all. And he wants to be worshipped as such. And so he says, construct this exactly like I tell you. Verse, uh, then going on here, verse 10. Well, well in, so one of the things that's happening here that we're going to see is that Yahweh is, is teaching his people here, especially in our passage today, teaching his people what it is to have a relationship with him. To be in fellowship with him. And the Ark of the Covenant, as we get into this, so the tent of meeting or the tabernacle, um, it's known by both of those things in our various translations. Um, that, that is the place that God said he would make his presence known among his people. But there's even a place more specific than that where he even more clearly makes his presence known. And that is the Ark of the Covenant. And so if you think about it this way, so God says he's going to dwell among his people. So, um, it, so wherever the Israelites are traveling, that's like the zip code of where God's at. All right? The tent of meeting would be like the neighborhood, this part of town. And then the Ark of the Covenant would be the house, the, the number on this street right here. It's like the heart of, of the tent of meeting is Ark of the Covenant. Um, you, you take, you take the, the heart out of the tent of meeting and it's just a tent. The, the ark is like the core of, of represent, the representation of God's presence. And if you read um, through the Old Testament there, you find that, uh, that there were times where the ark of the covenant was not present with God's people. And uh, it, it was a, a judgment against his people, a reminder that I am your protector, I am your provider, and you serve me. And God allowed the ark to be taken from his people, and it, and it, uh, it really upset uh, the cart for them. Um, and there, there are, God reminds his people that his, uh, his presence is not to be taken lightly, and neither is the covenant that they have with him. That they have a covenant to uphold on their end, to walk in fellowship with him. Now there's something interesting about the ark as we're going to get into this, and that is, so God says, hey, you're gonna, I'm going to give you instructions on building a sanctuary for me, constructing a sanctuary, a place where I'm going to make my presence manifestly known to you. And, but he starts with, when he starts giving out the, the actual blueprints, the actual design plans for what it's going to look like, he begins with the Ark of the Covenant. So God begins with the inside and works out. God begins with the very heart of his presence within the tent of meeting and works out. Um, which just, it, it, it kind of accentuates to me just the way that we see God work. And that is that God works in the heart and changes the life. It's when, when I repented of my sins and placed my faith in Christ, the first place that changed within me, uh, or the first, the first thing that changed was not the way I was speaking or my actions. 
the very first thing that changed was within me. My heart, my soul, my mind. And God began to transform me from the inside out. It's the way God works within us, that when we repent of our sins and place our faith in Christ, he begins the transformation from the inside out. God is uh, here giving instructions on the building of the tabernacle from the inside out, the Ark of the Covenant being the very heart of the Tenth of Meeting. So let's look at, with that in mind, let's look at now verse 10. They shall make an ark of acacia wood, two cubits and a half shall be its length, a cubit and a half its breadth, and a cubit and a half its height. Uh, if you're extremely concerned about what a cubit is, you can. I encourage you to look that up on your own time. Uh, I'm not going to go into the actual measurement here. Um, verse 11, you shall overlay it with pure gold inside and outside you shall, uh, shall you overlay it. And you shall make on it a molding of gold all around it. You shall cast four rings of gold for it and put them on its four feet. Two rings on the one side of it and two rings on the other side of it. You shall make poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold. Okay, so hopefully you guys can all see this pretty well. So God says, take an ark, or well, take an ark, take acacia wood, build essentially a, a, a box, build the ark, and then on the bottom of the ark, he says there to, there are to be feet. And by those feet are to be rings mounted so that the poles could be slid through the rings and then picked up and transported. Okay? So you've got the ark built with acacia wood, covered with gold inside and out, with feet, which I don't have represented here, and then rings attached to the, to the feet where the poles would be inserted. Okay? Then he says, and you shall put the poles into the rings on the sides of the ark to carry the ark by them. Now, God gives specific instructions here about how the ark is to be transported. Um, he says that it's to be transported by carrying it on the poles. So God makes a covenant with his people. The, the covenant is preserved, as we're going to see, inside the ark. That's to be transported by the people whom God has covenant with. It says, the poles shall remain in the rings of the ark. They shall not be taken from it. Okay, then... As, as we continue on here, um, actually before I continue on about the, the, what goes in the Ark of the Covenant, one thing I want to mention here is that, okay, so God gives us specific instructions about the construction of it and the poles that are to be inserted into the rings at the bottom of the, of the Ark and how it's to be transported by, by them holding the poles and transporting the Ark by hand. Um, God gives this specific instruction. Now, um, the ark becomes a representation of, of God's holiness, his majesty. And it's, it's not something to be trifled over or tampered with, to be treated casually. 
Now, if you were to, uh, you might want to write this down. We're not going to turn there. I'm going to kind of summarize it for you. But in 1 Chronicles chapter 13, uh, there, w- there was something interesting that happened. So King David wanted to transport the ark. Okay? And um, there was kind of a new idea that they had. So, you know, hey, instead of maybe like carrying this thing the whole way, how about we build a fancy new cart and we set it on there and then we save ourselves having to carry this thing the whole way and we'll make the cart really nice. It'll be a new cart, not just any old cart. And, and then we'll transport it that way. What happens is they, they do that uh, against the instructions that God had given them and they, they begin to transport this by cart and one of the gentlemen who is, is traveling along with this, escorting the ark along, um, notices that one of the oxen stumbles. The ark looks like it's beginning to shift. And so he reaches out to steady the ark and is immediately judged for that, touching the ark, and killed instantly from, from touching the holy thing of God. Now, King David actually got, one, very fearful of God's presence and judgment, and two, angry at God's judgment of, of the man who had touched the ark. What, what's interesting is as this story unfolds even further, David, King David, the whole procession here, which is this joyful procession, it just kind of ends abruptly. And King David goes, uh, I don't want this at my house. And, and so they, he finds another location for it, and the, the household where it resides then, uh, that family is tremendously blessed. So there's a whole thing that just goes awry by them saying, hey, we have a better idea than God. Um, instead of carrying it, like God said, let's build a cart. And then a whole series of events unfold um, that, that result from that. But God made very clear that the Ark of the Covenant, the representation of God's presence among His people, the, the, the picture of God's majesty and glory and holiness to His people, and contained within it uh, the, the, the commandments or the, the terms of their covenant agreement, um, He made it very clear that they were to take Him seriously and not casually, that this wasn't just something that they could, you know, get to, uh, um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for here? Um, the, holy, the holy things of God were not, were not an area to be improved upon. Um, it, it, this was not something that should be made more convenient. Um, this was, they were to approach God with reverence and awe. Verse, as we continue on here, verse 16, you shall put into the ark the testimony that I shall give you. What is this testimony? Well, if we look at, at either chapter 24, verse 12, or th- chapter 34, verse 28, we find that this is the covenants and the, the, or the commands and, and the instructions that God had given his people that are recorded on, this ta- on these tablets. Now, we, we don't know exactly what are written on the tablets. We know some of what is written on the tablets, but we don't know exactly. Um, 
So I know, I know uh, Charlton Heston held them up at one point, and we got a good glimpse of them. Uh, that may not exactly be what they look like. I hate to ruin it for you. Um, so w- in essence, so we ha- God gave them instructions on the construction of the ark, built of acacia wood, overlaid and inlaid with gold. It's to have the feet with the rings on it so that the poles can be inserted. They're not to be removed. They're to stay there. And then he says, take the, the tablets, the testimonies, the, the commands that I give you and put them inside. Now, these are just egg cartons, just so you know. And those are to go inside the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark, box of the Covenant, right here. These are the terms of the covenant. Now, this is, this is very significant that the terms of the covenant go in the Ark of the Covenant, right? So those are the terms of the covenant. So it's like a contract. When you agree to, I don't know, do anything, maybe you, you agree to rent a house, okay? There is going to be a contract that you sign that says you're responsible for X, Y, and Z, if you fail on your terms of that contract, then a certain type of judgment can come your way depending on what, how you violate it. Uh, that, is, that gives us an idea, although much more serious terms, of what this is, the terms of the covenant. The commands and instructions God gave His people that they agreed to and by which God says, if you will follow these, if you will Walk in my ways. If you will obey my commands, I I will provide for you. I will protect you. I will dwell with you. You will be my people. And I will be your God. And so the, the, the testimony kept within the command is the constant reminder. The Ark of the Covenant then becomes the constant reminder that they are going to be judged by the terms of the covenant with God. So what, what, what do these tablets bring to them? Well, remember um, prior when we talked about the Ten Commandments, we talked about it really being like a runway lights to show the path of God's blessing. But what these tablets bring also is they don't bring mercy. These tablets do not bring mercy. They do not bring grace. They can only bring judgment. They can only tell you whether or not you have violated the terms of the covenant. So they, they, the, 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 the commands, they show you the pathway of God's blessing, but inevitably what happens is, as God's people go along, they keep breaking over uh, uh, outside of the terms of the covenant that God has given them, brought to them. And so they violate the covenant. And these tablets, where, whereby God's instructions and commands are contained, they bring judgment. They tell them where they messed up. They tell them where they violated the terms of the covenant. Those are contained within the Ark of the Covenant. Now that's, that's extremely important to, to begin to grasp because of other parts of, of the design of the Ark of the Covenant that we're going to get to here. Verse 17, you shall make a mercy seat of pure gold. Two cubits and a half shall be its length, and a cubit and a half its breadth. 
Okay, the mercy seat. Now, that don't think in terms of a chair. Well, the word seat here would be, uh, it would be better to think of it in just in terms of location, um, place, rather than a chair. So the mercy seat, then, is the cover of the Ark of the Covenant. This just says hunting clothes. This is not a real mercy seat. This is the cover for the Ark of the Covenant whereby the commands are contained. So the commands that bring judgment, that show where his people have, have messed up and, 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 and gone astray and rebelled, are contained in the Ark with the cover over it that's called a mercy seat. Now, the mercy seat, don't think of it in terms of a place where like God sits or something, but rather um, the place where mercy will be found. The location where mercy will be found by his people. So as we, uh, we'll get more into that in a minute. We're going to continue on here with the design of the ark. Verse 18, and you shall make two cherubim of gold of hammered work shall you make them on the two ends of the mercy seat. Make one cherub on the one end and one cherub on the other end of one piece with the mercy seat shall you make the cherubim on its two ends. The cherubim shall spread out their wings above overshadowing the mercy seat with their wings, their faces one to another Toward the mercy seat shall the faces of the cherubim be. And you shall uh, put the mercy seat on the top of the ark, and in the ark you shall put the testimony that I shall give you. So we already covered that part of it, uh, the mercy seat going on top of the ark with the, with the uh, testimony contained within it. But we have two cherubim that are going to be constructed and put on either end of the mercy seat. Now, these cherubim are to be um, designed so that their wings would be spread out over them and their faces would be not up towards the holiness of God, but more down towards the mercy seat. Now, the cherub, cherubs, cherubim... Um, I just want to dispel some popular, um, popular culture here real quick. Do not think chubby baby angel. If you have chubby baby angel in your mind when you hear cherub, every cherub that God has ever created is highly offended. All right? This, this is uh, not at all the picture that Scripture gives us of what cherubim are. In fact, uh, turn with me to Genesis chapter 3, verse 22. All right, so you know the story. God created Adam and Eve. He places them in the Garden of Eden. Things are amazing. Um, They have amazing fellowship with their creator. And then the serpent comes along tempts Adam and Eve, 
they give in to temptation, they rebel against God, they take the fruit from the tree that God said don't take the fruit from the tree from, and, uh, and then they become aware of their sin. And here is some of the fallout that happened from that. Genesis chapter 3, verse 22. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. So God banishes Adam and Eve from the garden. Verse 24, he drove out the man and at the east of the garden of Eden he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way of the tree of life. Now, it, it, if you're honest with yourself, picturing a chubby baby angel sitting next to a flaming sword just doesn't work here, does it? God banished uh, them from the Garden of Eden and then set up guards to keep the unholy from the holy. So the cherubim here are, are the bouncers. They're the guards that prevent Adam and Eve who are now unholy from entering the place that is holy into the garden. All right? If you're not convinced, we won't turn there, but I want you to write down Ezekiel 1. Um, this gives even a greater description of the cherubim. And they are... Uh, intimidating doesn't even begin to scratch the surface of really the picture that is presented to us of who the cherubim are. Uh, but once again, what we see throughout Scripture is that the cherubim actually, you know, where often we see angels being messengers, the cherubim actually are presented to us more as guards. Sort of those who guard the way of the Holy One. So that not just any unholy person can enter through to the holy. So the cherubim are a, are a reminder that those who are judged by the, the, the testimony, the, the commandments, those who fall short of the glory of God, those who are, are sinners who continue to rebel and violate these commands are prevented from, uh, from being able to, to, to connect with the holy of holies. Okay? So God, um, God we have the Ark of the Covenant contained within it as the commands. We have the mercy seat on top with the cherubim on top of, uh, of the mercy seat. Built, uh, built into the mercy seat. All right, so let's, let's keep going here. Verse 21 and you shall put the mercy seat on the top of the ark, and in the ark you shall put the testimony that I give you. There I will meet with you, and from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim that are on the ark of the testimony, I will speak with you about all that I will give you in commandment for the people of Israel. Okay, so the mercy seat, um, God says where he is going to now meet and manifest his presence and speak to his people is going to be above the mercy seat uh, between the cherubim. Now, this is all um, significant, significant, and I hope you begin to grasp it, uh, that this isn't just religious paraphernalia. 
This isn't just ornate structures to look beautiful for the worship of God. Every little detail of the construction, the design, is, is symbolic and purposeful. Remember, Hebrews reminds us that the things that were present, the furniture that was present in the tent of meeting, and even the tent of meeting itself, it's, it's a picture, it's an earthly representation of heavenly realities. Okay? So these are earthly representations of heavenly realities. That is, that we have a sinful man judged by God's covenant, by God's commands, being separated from, by the cherubim uh, in, this, in this image, being separated from the Holy One, and in between is the mercy seat. So get, you have that picture in your head now. So remind yourself now, those tablets contained inside, do they bring mercy? No, in fact, when we get into the New Testament and we hear the Apostle Paul talk about the commandments, what does he say they bring? They, they bring judgment. They bring a conviction of sin. They bring a reminder of our rebelliousness before our Creator and our Judge. They bring a reminder of the wrath of God coming towards sinners, of which we all are a part of. But above that lies the mercy seat. And the mercy seat is extremely important. Now, one, of the, one last detail I want to just kind of give, give to you to help you try to get everything in perspective here is uh, 1 Chronicles chapter 28, verse 2. Um, I think we have that. We can throw it up here. There we go. Then King David rose to his feet and said, Hear me, my brothers and my people. I had it in my heart to build a house of rest for the ark of the covenant of the Lord and for the footstool of our God. And I made preparations for building. So um, we're not going to go into the details of what, what the particular passage is about here. But what I want you to take note of is how King David talks about the ark and uh, in relationship to God. I had it in my heart to build a house of rest for the ark of the covenant of the Lord and for the footstool of our God. So when we picture the ark and the mercy seat, this is not, it would be wrong to picture this as sort of like the place where God sits. But rather to picture this as the place where God rests his feet. Right now, in a symbolic way, of course, uh, not his literal feet, but that just as, a, just as a king would sit enthroned with a footstool beneath his feet and rest his feet on the footstool, so, so it, it is with the mercy seat, that this is like the footstool of God. God meets with his people here, and this is like the footstool of God under which are the commandments by which sinful people are being held accountable. All right? So let's continue on here, just understanding this a little bit. So Hebrews chapter 9, verse 22, reminds us of something very important. And that is that under the law, 
almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. So sinful people being held accountable by the commands of God contained within the Ark of the Covenant, they have no way to connect with the Holy of Holies, to be acceptable to Him, apart from forgiveness of sins, and that only comes through the shedding of blood. So what are they to do? So God essentially says, I'm going to make my dwelling place among you. I'm going to make my presence manifest among you. But there's a separation from the unholy to the holy. So how are the people then to connect with the holy one? Well, God also established a way for them to do that. Leviticus chapter 16, verse 11 through 16. We're going to read this because I think it's really important, especially as we get into Hebrews, to understand this in the context of Christ. Aaron shall present the bull as a sin offering for himself. So Aaron here being the lead priest, um, he's to present a bull as a sin offering for himself. So this is going to be the first thing that happens. So there's a day of atonement where, that, where, uh, um, where the sin of the people is, are going to be dealt with. But before the priest can actually go in and deal with the sin of the people, the sin of the priest has to be dealt with. So... So he shall make atonement for himself and for his house and shall kill the bull as a sin offering for himself. And he shall take a censer full of uh, coals of fire from the altar before the Lord and two handfuls of sweet incense beaten small and he shall bring it inside the veil. So so the, the animal is sacrificed outside of where the Ark of the Covenant is but then um, brought in will be um, the 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 blood and the uh, incense here, and put the incense on the fire before the Lord that the cloud of the incense may cover the mercy seat that is over the testimony so that he does not die. So the priest, in coming before God, in coming before the Ark of the Covenant, was in danger of being destroyed by this whole thing, by being judged for his own sin. All right, continue on here. Verse 14 And he shall take some of the blood of the bull and sprinkle it with his finger on the front of the mercy seat on the east side. And in the front of the mercy seat, he shall sprinkle some of the blood with his finger seven times. Okay, so so what happens is as the priest, for the priest to be acceptable, um, made made acceptable to even give uh, sacrifice for the people, his sins first have to be atoned for. And the bull sacrifice was the atonement for his sins. In fact, the blood was then to be sprinkled on the mercy seat. Blood shed upon the mercy seat for making the priest acceptable to the Holy One. Then he shall kill the goat of the sin offering, that is for the people, and bring its blood inside the veil and do with its blood as he did with the blood of the bull, sprinkling it over the mercy seat and in front of the mercy seat. So then he can address the sins of the people with the blood from the goat by sprinkling the blood on the mercy seat. Thus he shall make atonement for the holy place because of the uncleanness of the people of Israel and because of their transgressions, all their sins. And so he shall do for the tent of meeting which dwells with them in the midst of their uncleanness. So you have this picture now. Blood is required to make the unholy 
acceptable to the holy. So in between the unholy, where sinners are judged by the commands here, contained within the Ark of the Covenant, we have the mercy seat on top. This is where sinners receive mercy through the shedding of blood. Well, there's something that begins to then become pretty clear to us, especially as we turn to Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 11 and 12 says, But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places. That's where this is, the holy places. Not by means of the blood of goats and calves, like we just read about in Leviticus, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. Earthly representation of the heavenly truth that sinful man is separated by, um, is separated in their sin from the holy and righteous God. And in between is the mercy seat. And on that mercy seat, in order to make those who are unholy, to make them acceptable and holy, something needs to happen in between. In between the unholy and the holy, something has to happen. And it says, Scripture says, the only way that the unholy can be made acceptable to the holy is for blood to be shed. And not just any blood to be shed. For the Day of Atonement happened over and over and over and over and over. But Hebrews remind us, reminds us that Christ gave his life once and for all, the perfect sacrifice, so that after he shed his blood, his job was done. And it was his blood then that is sprinkled on the mercy seat to make the unholy holy. The blood of Christ shed for us. Romans chapter 3, verse 23. I want to turn there with me. Romans 3.23 For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That is, all of us are being judged by the commandments. All of us are being judged to have fallen short. and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forth as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. So this, this the language here, when we begin to understand the construction and the design that God put forth there in Exodus, we begin to even better understand the language that the Apostle Paul even uses, which is that it was the blood of Christ who was given as the propitiation for our sins, the covering, the atoning sacrifice for our sins. 
And it is by His grace, through the gift of Christ, that we are made acceptable to Him. So in other words, what we find is that in Exodus, where we have the mercy seat, where the priest would sprinkle the blood to make the unholy acceptable to a holy God, the mercy seat that we go to now is not on top of the ark. It's not just the, the place that covers up the commands and contains the commands, but it is the very cross where our Savior was crucified. First Timothy chapter 2, verses 3 through 6. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. One mediator. Christ is referred to as the mediator. That is, there is the unholy, and there is the holy one. And in between is the mediator, Christ, who makes the unholy holy through his blood shed on the cross. I want you to uh, turn with me to Hebrews chapter 12. There's a whole lot in Hebrews there that you can uh, read to give a, a uh, contextual understanding of all the things that we're going to be reading about in Exodus to put them in the context of Christ, our Savior, having come and given his life as a ransom for all. But we're going we're gonna to look here as we round this out in Hebrews chapter 12. So the place where sinners find salvation, where sinners find forgiveness, it's not at the Ark of the Covenant. It's at the cross. The cross is where we go, where Christ shed his blood for us to find forgiveness of sin. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. He received the judgment of God's, uh, uh, God's judgment against our sin. God, uh, Jesus Christ bore it on the cross. He was our perfect Passover lamb, as the Apostle Paul says then in hebrews chapter 11 are outlined so many faithful people who trusted in god for salvation and then we get to chapter 12 therefore since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the, uh, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Now flip forward to verse 18. Now this is... Uh, when you, put, when you take the context of God's construction uh, blueprints for the, the tent of meeting and everything that goes in the tent of meeting and especially the Ark of the Covenant, and you put in the context of, of Christ having come to bear the sins of all, his blood sacrifice being sufficient for all, and then you put, in that, put our living in faith in him into all that context, then 
here's where we are. Verse 18, for you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. This is all referencing things that we've already read about and looked at in Exodus. So if, you, if, if you're scratching your head about what all this means, I would encourage you to kind of go back through Exodus and you'll begin to understand this a little better. Um, as, as member of the people were pleading, no more. Don't let God speak to us directly anymore. Verse 20, For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Remember, that was one of the things that God said um, to, before Moses went and they met with him near the mountain and Moses went up to meet the Lord. Verse 21, Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. In other words, you... Sinner, me, sinner, have been invited through Christ, his blood being given for us, have been invited to have fellowship with God himself. No longer being separated by, that, by our sin, but having been made righteous and holy through Christ. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. God is giving you an opportunity today to repent and believe in him. There is a warning here that that if those that Moses warned on earth suffered judgment when they refused to heed his warnings, how much more are we going to be judged if we refuse the warning given to us when Jesus says repent and believe? Verse 26, at that time, his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of all things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. All the stuff of earth, all the stuff that doesn't belong to God is going to be shaken out. It's going to be rattled. It's like imagine a, uh, um, a, a screen and you just, you, you know those screens where you can kind of shake and, and sift. Um, you dump a whole bunch of junk, just a, a bucket load of, of, of dirt into this sifter. And this shift, the sifter just gets shaken and shaken and shaken until only certain particles remain. That's the picture of what God is going to do with all the earthly things. My life, your life, this world we live in, it's going to get shaken. And it's going to get shaken hard. And all the stuff that, that doesn't measure up 
that doesn't belong with the Holy One is going to be shaken out. But what the author of Hebrews is reminding us is that we are a part, as believers in Christ, we are a part of a kingdom that is not shaken. We don't shake out. So when God does his sifting, those who believe in Christ, you don't sift out. You belong to him. You can't be shaken out of that. You belong to him. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. The very thing which God said he was back here during the construction of the ark when, when uh, Uzzah was killed for just merely touching it, let us worship him with reverence and with awe, for our God is a consuming fire, but our consuming fire God has also made us acceptable to him so that we're not destroyed by his presence because of Christ. Rather, we are embraced as his children. Remember John's gospel He says that for those who believed in him, he gave the right to become his children. Is that you today? Have you heeded the warning of God that his judgment is coming and that he's provided you a blood sacrifice through Christ to make the unholy holy, acceptable to the Holy One? We stand separated from God. The, the image of, of the cherubim reminds us, reminded the people that you are separated from the Holy One. And apart from God making you clean, you are unclean. And Christ came and gave his life as a sacrifice for us. And we are called now, as Timothy says, that God desires that all of us would believe that all of us would repent of our sins and look to the cross of Christ where we would receive mercy and grace. Not because we deserve it, but because God loved us so much that he sent his son that whoever believes in him will have everlasting life. Father, we thank you for, Lord, all, all these, all of your word. We thank you, also for salvation. Lord, we ask that you would help us to grasp these, these things in Exodus that we're looking at, the construction of the ark and the design and, and all the other things that are going to go and that went in the tent of meeting, Lord, that, that we would grasp, one, that you are holy and righteous and just and glorious and majestic. That you are not to be trifled with. That you are not to be dealt with in a casual way. But Lord, we, that we are all going to be held accountable to you. Lord, let us also understand more and more what a treasure it is that you would send your son to die for us, to bear the weight of your punishment against our sin. That mm, much better than the blood of goats, much better than the blood of bulls, is the blood of Christ, once shed for everyone who would come to you by faith. 
Thank you for the forgiveness of our sins. Thank you for giving us the inheritance of eternal life. Thank you for promising your presence with us in the Holy Spirit as we repent and believe in you. Thank you for not abandoning us or forsaking us. Thank you for reaching from heaven to earth to save us and paying an ultimate price to do so. Lord, let that never be lost on us. But let us be more grateful as every day goes by that, Lord, when, when this earth is judged, when it is shaken, that, Lord, we may have confidence because we are a part of a kingdom that will not be shaken because we are your children through faith in Christ. May you be glorified through us. Lord, and I pray for those who seek you now that they would repent and believe in you and walk in your ways. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, there's a kind of a, an ironic thing that we see in Scripture that God commands the Ark of the Covenant to be um, made of acacia wood, wrapped with gold, inlaid with gold, the mercy seat on top to be wrapped with gold, the cherubim on here with gold, and the most beautiful thing in all of Scripture is the cross. The rugged, coarse, disgusting, blood-covered cross is the most beautiful thing in all of Scripture in terms of the, 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 the furniture, if you will, that we see in Scripture. Because it is through the blood of the cross that God makes sinners holy. And Jesus knew this. John chapter 19, after this, with Jesus hanging on the cross, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. It is finished, church. The blood that was shed for you upon the mercy seat of the cross was once and for all for those who come and receive him by faith. The Lord bless and keep you as you now walk by that same faith as belonging to him.